Hello okay. everybody. Thank you for waiting for us. Uh, welcome to the th uh, the third webinar of the BART program of the Jindal School of Art and Architecture. My name is Sarovar Zaidi. I am um, a faculty at the Jindal School of Art and Architecture, and uh, we've been running this school for about three years now. Uh, and uh, this is this session today is uh, called Materials and Making. Uh, it's entirely inspired by a core philosophy of our school, uh, which was something uh, we were all were part of setting up, including uh, Professor Jaydeep Chatterjee, uh, me, Professor Alok Parna, Girish Zai, and others. And one of the things that we all thought about was that architecture has a very strong domination of thinking about the idea of representation. And it takes somewhere the, the, the forms that architecture students engage in, uh, dominate through the ideas of representation and drawings and plans, etc. And we wanted to build into our school a strong uh, notion of working with materials and making. And we were highly inspired by uh, an anthropologist whose name is Tim Ingold, who you might have heard of. And there's a text of his if you are interested in reading. It's called Making, uh, Anthropology, Archaeology, Art and Architecture. Hmm. And he is one of the few uh, people who has worked at the cusp of bringing together forms of thinking and making. And uh, <clears throat> today's session is essentially uh, working with different people. I mean, both Arijit, Asha and Kurt are both for me, all three of them are architects and they are people who work on the ideas of making. They're also people yeah, who, uh, I accept. Uh, maybe you have to be on mute a little bit, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> uh, and they work as researchers, they work as uh, architects, they work as people who thinking, think about the built environment. They, they also work with people who make and who build things, right? Uh, so today's session, I'm not going to, uh, I'm going to keep talking about materials and making uh, in a lot more detail because it's a whole new terrain of knowledge and it's a terrain of thinking about knowledge through forms of uh, uh, materiality. Uh, as part of the course that we uh, run, and it's an atelier course, where, which is a part of the foundation studio. Uh, Asha, can you stop sharing your screen for five minutes? Then, okay. Yeah. Okay. I think it's working. Um, is it? Um, okay. Just as part of the lecture uh, <clears throat> or uh, the foundation year, well, one of the, the different things the students do as part of it, and two of the students are also here, and I introduced the whole panel. Uh, it'd be nice if everybody has their, uh, just, the, just the panel has their videos on, it'd be nice. So we work through taxonomies of classifications of materials, and they look at how uh, they collect materials, they work on uh, thinking with materials. There's a kind of tactility that is introduced in the first year itself. And today's webinar is trying to look at the way uh, materials and making is a very integral part of uh, architectural thinking and architectural practice. And this is something that we really, really uh, build our students towards in uh, the JSA. So welcome. I'm going to just give a brief introduction of everybody because we've waited a bit of time. And uh, there are two students here, Tarun and... Uh, Saloni. Tar Tarun is from, uh, he's just gone into second year. 
and Saloni is gone into third year and they will also be part of this discussion as part of our panel. But I'll introduce the speakers first. Asha and Arijit, are your videos, either of your videos working? Can you put them um, Arjit's video is working. I'm screen sharing, so I'll just okay, so sure. Arijit, Arijit and Asha. Asha's name you all can see, Asha Sumra. Uh, so I'm going to first introduce Hello, Asha. my dearest. My video is gone. Hello. There, there, I'm fine. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't make it over yesterday. Uh, is it, can we have, there are lots of parallel conversations. Yeah, I know, I was... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry I couldn't. It was just, uh, I couldn't have arranged what? Oriel's cart gum and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not doing autos. Uh, I think there's someone's please. conversation going on. I don't know. <laughs> I think I hear the voice of Pat uh, Patrick. Patrick, can you please mute your video? Right. Patrick, please mute your Zoom. Thank you, Patrick. Okay, so Arijit, uh, okay, let me start with Asha. Asha is, everybody has vanished for me, gallery view, okay. Asha <laughs> studied architecture at Cambridge University and at the Catholic University of Valparaiso, which I will of course pronounce wrong. Uh, she has uh, studied also maritime and nautical design and uh, with Arijit, who has uh, studied at SEPT and in Paris, also naval architecture. They, for many years, have been working on the Mangalore Tiles Factory at Mangalore. Currently, they're based in Mangalore. They, they spend their time between Mangalore and England and other parts of the world uh, and have focused on thinking about both materials, the movement of uh, materiality and design across the Indian Ocean. And they will talk about this themselves. Uh, Kurt, on the other hand, is someone who I always think lives in Delhi, but is currently in Florida. Kurt has spent a large amount of time in Delhi and different parts of India. Uh, Kurt, is your video on for a minute, please? Yeah, just uh, for a minute. Way, yeah. Can see both of us so Kurt is the guy with the, with the funky sunglasses, like all cool architects. So Kurt is uh, someone... Um, worked at the Sarai, he's, he's taught at different uh, schools of architecture in LA and in the US, and is currently also doing his PhD on, uh, uh, which is titled Substitutions of Modernity Materials and the Modern Home in India. And him and I have gone on some little trysts into different parts of uh, Delhi, looking at concrete jalis and looking at way cement and concrete are used, making new materialities in the contemporary housing formats of South Asia, I would say. So I welcome everybody. And then we have Tarun and Saloni. And Tarun will give us, uh, Saloni will give us a very short, uh, she's sitting in her car. Uh, she will give us a very short uh, intro to herself and how this course also connects to the work. And then we are over to Arijit and Asha. So thank you for coming uh, and thank you for waiting. Can you, can you hear me? Yes, now first uh, Saloni. Yeah, I'm very used to this. Yeah. Uh, hello everyone, I'm Saloni and I'm in my third year of architecture now. Um, so just a brief introduction and a basic overview of the work that I've done in materials and making studio that I like in my first year where with concrete where we built the who made us interact with 
different materials their taxonomies where i dealt with texture and dr mr gaurav sharma where i got to know about wood majorly i worked with plywood but there was sort of a relationship that i thought that i was developing with the material in order to reach the stage of its making but in my second year uh, my relationship with materials and making it evolved and i started looking at it in another way where i was learning about saranpur jali because i belong from saranpur so i was learning about it i got to know about my grandfather's archives he used to work in the same field um and it was very beautiful how i started looking at it in a different direction where the making of jali was experimented with different materialities and i got to trace its path like down like the history of it and how it's been evolved and how it has been incorporated in architecture and how we look at it in our daily lives i think it's been a beautiful journey to see and i feel that whatever we see around whether it's architecture and built environment and we when we have a relationship with the materials i think they have a beautiful story to tell that we can just get to know so yeah i'm really looking forward to your talk and have a nice conversation with you about it okay thanks aloni we'll come back to you again and tarun also okay. and uh, over to arijit and asha Uh, sure we can see your shoulders mostly but it's fine we can also see your slides uh, i think yeah. i think i think can you can you hear me yes we can hear you please can i say something yes yeah, i mean it's it, it's great that you can actually hear yes and you can see at least our shoulders it was like one of the most challenging moments since covid to be available to you guys <laughs> I'm so sorry that uh, <laughs> no, 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 sorry. Uh, Kurt also had similar issues or crazier issues maybe last night itself and but I think we'll just have to pray to the gods of internet and all the connectivity. Sure. And thanks. Thanks so much, Sivarva, so for setting this up. Yeah. So can you? I just want to check if you can see the my screen at the moment before yes, we start. Yeah. You yeah. can. Okay. Great. Um. So um a lot of our work has quite a direct engagement with materials and making but we wanted to add an extra element to that which is an idea of materials making and breaking because a lot of what we do has to do with understand how understanding an engagement with materials and making through how things are taken apart as well as how things are put together and this this for us we're going to talk about primarily about wood and about and about clay and for us this this engagement starts with boats and continues on into the realm of of the mangalore tile so this image is from manvi kutch where many of you probably know that there's a a very long tradition of wooden boat building and our engagement began with trying to get students to understand how things are made through understanding the processes of how wooden boats are put together and this resulted in a kind of overlay of sections of the forms that were generated through a very uh, time worn process of interacting with timber 
can go to next. Uh, this is an alum. Uh, we went to alum to see how the spaces inside the each house actually look like. Also to understand the dynamics of uh, one of the roughest industries on planet. And uh, we saw that the ships, the way they were dipped, the, the, the broken process, and all further sent to different uh, boundaries to make uh, the parts useful for us everyday life. As a fantastic supply chain, it has its own ecology. Also, it has its also own ecology. meaning. Uh, Arijit, one of your mics has to be off because uh, there's a because the two mics on, so there's a cross echo. Yeah, so I think Asha can be off. Yeah, Asha's off. Yeah. Because we are sitting next to each other, although we are using two devices. Yeah, yeah. okay. Is that any better? Is that better? Yeah, this is perfect. This is uh, better. Yeah, so now you see, I mean, uh, in, the, in the screen, uh, I think we can be really slow because people are using devices like we are struggling to share. People might just like to zoom in, zoom out. So. So this is inside one of the container ships, which we took us like almost half an hour to go from one end of the ship to the other, and they were breaking it down. Uh, the light that comes from the top of uh, one of these containers, which are used to carry chemicals, have this uh, ray of light coming from the top because they have made these holes to see uh, that will help them cut it. Uh, and the other one is a ribbed section, which is used to carry grains from different parts of the world, mainly from Africa to the other part of the world. So these kind of uh, explorations, with, these are actually work with students and uh, help us draw and conceive the idea of how huge spaces can be inhabited around, in and around water. And likewise, similarly looking at how things are put together at the same time as looking at how things are taken apart. So on the one hand, you're seeing a little bit of food, Asha, you have to be a little bit closer to the mic, please. Okay. Oh, we can just use this. And yeah. The other yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. Okay. So simultaneously looking at how things are put together and how things are taken apart. Okay. So on the one hand, the wooden boat building tradition. On the other hand, the practices of taking apart these huge steel ships and the spatial consequences of both of those putting things together and taking. As you see, that was 2012, and uh, so we were in Mandvi in Gujarat. I mean, we are, we were struggling with students to understand uh, how these wooden ships are made, why they are not made anymore, and whatever is left, they're breaking them. Then we go to Alang. They say, okay, the steel ships, the huge hulls, they're also getting broken, and there are so many things that are useful to both of us, and uh, which we cannot carry back to our studios in our car or bike or buses. So. Left us with the idea of uh, breaking. And, uh, so, what is useful is not always that you can just pick up, pick them up, and carry them back. Maybe the memory of what is useful stays with you for long enough. Yeah. Then the next slide you see. Uh, these are fantastic people. I mean, uh, this is in Chilean Patagonia where we were. Uh, are we uh, helping them or we were? We were working as apprentices. Yeah, we are apprentices. For a small scale wooden boat building yard um, in Patagonia. And this is the, the boat that was sitting on, sitting on top of one of the keels in process. So this is an extension of 
understanding how wood is used to make quite complex forms, but with very simple processes. So to me, the, the, uh, the seed that they were sitting there is completely made by hand. Everything there is made by hand. They don't have electricity. They don't have uh, any road connectivity. And yet these huge chunks of wood is, uh, it's almost like the movie Fitzcarraldo. What they did in the Bhadrav did for the movie, they do it maybe twice a month with uh, the help of these huge oxes. And uh, so, and these yeah, and these things are made just by heat bending huge logs of wood, cutting them into pieces and understanding how they behave. Also understanding how things around them enable them to conceive a project which is making of a boat. Now, there is also a lot of other things we'll talk in the future if we have time. It's about why they do what they do and also the question of doing something well because they know it and the idea of wholeness. And so this is, a, this is pretty much a place where everything is done by a set of people who have been doing this over and over and over again. And the question is not about refinement anymore. The question is about wholeness. It becomes, it, it comes to a stage where these, uh, these three brothers cannot but imbibe the craft in their everyday way of life. I mean, it's part of them. It's not, the craft is not anymore a separate entity. So these, these are the these processes were set up almost like a series of props. So whatever materials they had access to in this case. Asha, we can't hear you okay. too far away. Yeah, okay. This so this set of processes is set up in space as a set of props based on what resources they have to hand, which in this case is primarily timber. So they build, they build up the sheds, they use the oxen to, to move the timber that they have and they even use the boats themselves in order to prop up shelter to support, to support the roofs that cover the things, the hulls whilst they're being, being constructed. Yeah, so these, these drawings explore some of those props and some of those processes that occur within this quite traditional and quite simple setup. Here, uh, the, the idea of uh, dragging a boat or a, or a barge into the sea or into the river or the estuary in itself uh, is, needs its own planning and uh, its own infrastructure. And uh, it also involves a lot of knowledge of how you do. Somebody, somebody wants to say something? Okay, somebody's Someone. mic is on, please. Switch it off. Uh, and Sohail, uh, we'll take your question later. There's going to be a whole discussion thing. Everybody, please switch off their mics. There's someone who's unknown whose mic is. Yeah, I've muted them. 
cool. Yeah. Okay. Your video is off now, so Arijit, if you know that. Okay. Let me see. Start video. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there is one. Uh, yeah. This is also the next slide is something that we got into the first one of the first. Uh, it's it's under snow now. I guess it's, it's this is also in Patagonia. Uh, we made this uh, next a small extension of a house, and you can see practically coming out of the courtyard and uh, dealing with so much of food. And uh, we made a basic frame and uh, made a roof and uh, provided enough ventilation, circulation. Yeah. But, but just to explain, this is a it's a direct ex extension of of the learning of how to work directly with materials. So what we what we did with the boatyard was part partly understanding how the boats were made, but it was also helping them to construct a new shed for to house their processes. And then for us that led into a, a specific way of building that came from our understanding of how these particular people worked with wood. And so we built a small extension in in southern Chile. So this is the place. Uh, I mean, we take a little bit like two or three slides to actually tell you where we were. We would like show you this place because I think it's very important for you to uh, engage with the place more than before getting to making. And uh, it is one of the most uh, humid and uh, it rains as much as it does in the Malabar coast and more than that. It had the worst hit earthquakes in the world, Richter uh, scale 8.6. And uh, these are scattered mountains with, uh, with a river ending near this place where these brothers choose to live and make boats. And uh, these kind of uh, contexts also enable you to think, act, and adapt to a specific way of making. And this was a this was a small refuge that we designed for the boat builders in order for them to be able to accommodate apprentices because there were a number of people who were interested in their work but they had no capacity to house them. It was always quite a struggle for people to come and observe and document and really engage with, with the practices of making. This was an extension of our, our engagement with them. And a lot of the spirit of this work comes specifically out of the legacy of the, the Valparaiso school, where they they take students of various different disciplines across South America to build interventions directly in the landscape. And this is one of the examples of these, which is built within the interior scenes of Patagonia. This is uh, 2009. Yeah, you carry on. So yeah, I think this is the uh, last, uh, not last, this is the, uh, this has a continuous overlap with all these uh, nautical and maritime stories. This is in Bangladesh, Savar 2009, outskirts of Dhaka, craftsmen making boats because these are the last craftsmen left. They're all dead now. And uh, the last images of something that we were 
there, I think last year, this time, uh, reviving the idea of the craft as it lives and understanding how that can be used, repurposed, and hence an idea of living in the Delta. So the point being, uh, making uh, boats or uh, working with wood or materials that allow certain craft to take form is not limited to any particular context, but it has the same meaning across continents because the craft in itself loses meaning if you cannot practice the craft. Uh, give it a pause. Uh, we've traveled across like two continents now. This is exactly where we are sitting now. We're very close to this building now, and we are very far away from the first slide that was in South America. So we need a pause, deep breath. And uh, even now it's raining outside, and uh, this is one of the most uh, humid and uh, wet places, I think, if not in northwest of India, but in South India. It rains a lot, and this is the first Basel Mission tile factory uh, where we came directly from those boatyards uh, in 2015. And uh, this is the factory, this is the photograph where we first, first saw this building without having any clue what it's all about. And uh, the rest, what is what we are supposed to talk about. So, this is about the tile. Sarovar is like, where is the tile? These guys talking about boats and ships. So I knew you will. I knew you will go into the ships and the boats and the, uh, which is great. Uh, everybody who has a question, please uh, be a little bit patient. Let Let's finish with the presentation and Kurt's presentation. We have set aside a certain amount of time for discussion, so don't worry. We'll take your questions, and you can even type them and keep them. And I can. I will be the one who will be uh, navigating through that, since we're into navigation now. Uh, <laughs> so we're. Mm. We're shifting continents, but we're also shifting materials. Yeah, so you shifted from wood to the tile factory. Yeah, so now we're into to clay. And wood also has plays its part in terms of firing the clay. But we're dealing directly with the, with the manufacture of manual tiles, but also the spaces that are created by the manufacture of these tiles. So this is as Roger said, the first Mangalore tile factory, which was built by the Basel Mission in 1865. And this is a site plan of, of the current setup of the factory in relation to, to the Netravati River, which feeds out into the Arabian Sea. And when the, when the factory was constructed, this river would have been a major artery for the trade of the tiles across the Arabian Sea. So this is 2019 when the drawing is made for, 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 for one of our projects. But going back to this photograph again, this is 2014, sorry, 16, 2016. So the day this photo was taken, I think there were six more factories. And today that I said, there are only two factories. Four of them are already gone. Imagine this building is there and you call me up in two, two months, I would say, no, it's not anymore because we're going to talk about that. And uh, so that's why I want you, this is there, this is one of our sites. So this is there, but I think by the time, since 2016, four of them have gone, but it's, it's like cricket pitch. Man. And 
for us. For us, this was a site for us to understand an interaction with materials, but it was also a site for, for us to intervene and to create our own interaction with those materials. So this is... What do you um, find inside the factory? Yeah, these are the, the functioning factories. And it's important to understand that increasingly these factories are being demolished or abandoned. So there's a set of situations in which these factories do or used to work directly with clay. And there's also a, a feeling of residue where many of them have been left abandoned and the resources that are left as a result of the non-functioning factory. So these, this is how the factories are. And these are some of the, the products that, that were originally made within the factory. So you see a, a range of different roof tiles. And um, I don't think I can, if I can put the cursor on this. This one is the original Basel Mission tile. Bottom, bottom from, uh, third from the bottom right. I put the cursor on Third from bottom right. Yeah, yeah we can see it. We can yeah, see so the cursor. That's the original one. And these, these are all variations of roof lights. Uh, you know, it would be nice if you can briefly just mention the the connecting histories of the Basel mission and just like in maybe two lines or so because not everybody will. Sure. Well, the Basel mission was a German mission which was operating all over the world but it had particularly strong presence in India, South America, Australia and parts of Africa. And the mission developed most strongly in South India. And it's important, it's important to note that it was a Protestant mission. So most of what we know of Christianity in South India is Catholicism. Catholicism, yeah. But this was, this was, this was a Protestant mission. And everywhere that, that they set up a mission, mission station, they endeavored to also set up a means of livelihood for all the people who were being converted to their particular form of Christianity. So for them, work was worship. And so the tile industry became part of their process of establishing a livelihood. So they used prototype design uh, from somewhere else and they adapted it to the material here, right? I think someone, someone just asked a question, did they have a factory in Calicut? Yes, they did. They still do. Yeah. And uh, the first factory is in, was built in Mangalore, and the second factory was in Calcutta. I think Zaroba also asked a question. Yeah, Zaroba. I was just asking that they, uh, they they had a prototype design, and then they adapted it to the material here. And uh, no, actually, no. what happened was they experimented with a variety of different industries, mm -hmm. including including farming and watchmaking, which proved to be quite unsuccessful. Mm. And there was one particular mission, missionary, who was an engineer, and he discovered the strength and the characteristics of the Mangalore, the Mangalore clay. Mm. And he, he took this clay back to Europe, tested it, and realized its capacity to be used to make tiles and a variety of different products. And he, Devise the design of the Mangalore tile, 
the, also the printing press, the first printing press was also set up here. And I think a colleague of ours is here, Rachel Lee, who worked on Otto Konigsberger. And uh -huh. she also worked on the printing press, as far as I recall. Oh, mm. Call her in when the discussion happened. So, it, in a sense, it was a European experiment with Indian resources. Yeah. So it was a European engagement with Indian clay that led to the the design and the manufacture of the Mangalore tiles and then subsequently a, a great variety of products in terracotta. And this is just a small sample of yeah. some of those products. This is in our trunk here. Yeah. Oh wow, probably. And the cat. Ah, and the cat, yeah. but we have more now. Okay, uh, Arijit, you, you, uh, we have to go a little bit faster with yeah. your I know. I mean, honestly, the, most of the stuff now, I mean, even, even uh, some of the stuff is published and we can always share it. With yeah. No, no, it's always nice to hear you and see the images. Don't worry. I shared the thing. It's always nice to. Right. So, after we got into the factory, they asked us uh, one day to build a, an office building for them. and. Uh, um, they were already in the factory, we said the factory is great, we love the factory, so let us do something with clay. And the fellow was the owner of the factory, said, yeah, anything you want to do with clay, as simple as that, so we made these bricks, four of them, uh, right there, bottom left. The way we made them, I don't think you have the time to hear, but they were extruded, cut, and fired. Basically, like, you make the clay the way it's made for tiles, but you put it in an extruder, for that you make a mouthpiece, extrude them, cut them, fire them, and you have them. So you can make your own biscuits, basically, and it is like a chocolate factory. So this is this is this is the section of the. Not showing all the drawings, just one drawing that shows the section of the factory with an afternoon film and the building on the left, which is built now and uh, survived two monsoons. This is inside with the bricks with the left hollow and keeping uh, wow. them cooling. And those are the tiles that further went up, uh, making the roof. And uh, everything in this building is made with resources from the factory. Uh, in fact, in the back, sir, in the, the, near the steps, there is a tile that was actually repaired because that's not made anymore. Uh, this one, and uh, we put some little cement to hold that piece of glass, and it's still there. Such small things, but apart from that. Uh, uh, like the main factory uh, is made out of lime mortar. We also use lime to make the fluid. Mm. And uh, from bottom, I mean, from left to right, you can see finished building, and uh, the last one is an unfinished building. Photo of the unfinished space. So they pretty much look the same. So yeah. wow. very challenging task to stand in front of this one almost 150 year old yeah. building uh, made by the Swiss, which. Uh, we can endlessly talk about, but yet to make something simple with the resources of that time. But I, I think the, the main intention of making this building was to co continue the conversation in clay. So mm. there, there's a set of processes as to how you manufacture the mandalore tile, and there's also a set of spaces that result from, from that housing those processes. And so this building, this building talks to that but also sets up its own way of engaging with clay and in itself it functions almost like a clay pot and that's the reason that's behind using 
this particular bond and this particular combination of color bricks, which were designed specifically for the project. You are the next visionaries with the new clay brick. <laughs> new clay brick design. <laughs> Interesting. No, uh, I, I always keep talking about the monsoon because even it's raining now and I'm bored. And, uh, oh, this is, look at this. Uh, yeah, this, this is what I want actually. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's want. fine. I just like, wow. Yeah, so this is normal. I mean, this is the factory and this is the roof now after, after this last monsoon. So, uh, I mean, the buildings really look like they're battered after the monsoon. And they, that's why tiles sell, because people want to replace the tiles. Mm. <laughs> so this is the reality of engaging with these materials. This is what happens to them over time. And this is, this is the current situation. Weathering, yeah. We, we, in fact, our students did this whole thing of decay as part of their taxonomies and how materials decay. And because we always look at materials when they're made and then how do they kind of, you know, fold with the weather and the built environment and use, of course. Exactly. Fantastic. Now, there is one little thing now. This video, if you guys can just focus, it's, I think, a fraction of seconds you need to understand. I'll see if we're in this video. Can you see? Yes, we can see this brick. Oh. Yes. That's it. I think you can play it just one, one more time. We just need two seconds. It's a strange uh, pleasure in seeing things break also. <laughs> So this is this is the breaking of one of these factories. Now, by the time we got used to how Mangalore tiles are made and the factory and, and the endless the chocolate factory, by the time we got to know that how how the Swiss made this factory, then the entire process of making a building from products in the factory, we also got to know that these factories are not gonna stay as long as we thought and one of them just showed you out of many that it got demolished and uh, then we are left with a site full of residue and for some it's waste and but it's material and uh, of different kind sorts and uh, size shape and use so this is what you find after a factory is broken so this is the residue okay so Arijit, now I will have to at some point just <laughs> like maybe you can just show a set of images and we can move to Kurt. I know, I know. Because then we'll Kurt, yeah. bring in your conversation in the discussion because yeah. okay. right? I think we we'll just show you the images. It's okay, nothing I much we can So this is these are the factories being broken and oh. and, and, and and we go and look at uh, everything is for sale, so if you see if you can make something out of it. These are the casts and molds that we find and wow. they were once used and uh, I have an endless collection now. I have no more space in my apartment but I have resourced them to some of my sites and uh, then got into buying stuff for buildings that we can make it useful wow. and uh, now when you, when, when you have a client who wants you to make a project, we, we say okay we'll get you bricks but there are then 25 kinds of bricks which are 100 year old. Wow. So this is the reality. You should have but a brick still, Oh yeah. And uh, so there's one house and uh, which we're trying to make out of 
is brick. The red dot is the house of Spelagun in the Arabian Sea. And we are here with 15 kinds of bricks over the last 150 years because that's what we're left with. And uh, yeah, so that uh, is next to the river and it's bang in the middle of the. Uh, this is a model of the house, okay. Yeah, yeah. model of the house, more than the house is, is, the, is the river basin. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Wow, lovely. So this and students are watching how to make models. Yeah, it's feeding directly into another another project. And these are now some of the casts that we are making as a process of designing this house. So wow. using some of the ideas and some of the materials from the factory, but translating it into the design of a house. So those white things you see and. Uh, and the clay uh, thing mm -hmm. is, is basically uh, the, the west wall of the house. And these are the walls we made in the factory. And, and, and when I say I made in the factory, I'll tell you why but, uh, later. But these are the basically products that mm. uh, found in the factory. The clay is basically working as a labor. You find yourself comfortable with your hands once mm. you engage with your body. So these are. Exactly. Then again, then again uh, this is another site where we just sell these stuff. These are clean parts on the left, if you see. Hmm. I still don't know if you guys have clue. I mean, we have an idea how to use them, but there are things that we always negotiate. Uh, that's a full-scale model, 1 is to 20 of one wall, which we draw so many times to understand. Wow. How, wow. Yeah, we, we, we definitely fire them sometimes, but uh, wow. we keep making stuff to engage uh, more with the idea of what we want. As a process, there are a few quarters in the audience, by the way. I had invited some. <laughs> and then on the right hand side is the reality of actually constructing with some of these residues. Oh, so if you see, those bricks are like uh, it's a dentistry subject, they are not normal because they are coming from a chimney. A chimney, the same chimney that broke, gave us almost 20,000 bricks. The chimney bricks are not straight, they are, they are like this, they have a taper. So okay. out of that, if you make a wall, you're not. Mm -hmm. So that's how you have to make drawings of courses. Reuse them in a sense. Reuse right? them. Repurpose oh. and reuse them. Perfect. And uh, these are the walls, like exactly like the pin. So if you use a pin brick to make a wall, the wall is not going to be straight like where I am sitting. Mm. So they have that. So this is the house which you might have opportunities to stop later. On, on the left hand side is the construction of the kiln, and on the right hand side mm. is the construction of the house. I think we I think are done. Yeah. Um, okay, this is a party on. And <laughs> no, this is from a movie which got screened. Uh, yeah. A screenshot, and uh, it is also inside an abandoned factory. Oh, wow, and the mango tiger at the back. Okay. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, let you, we'll let you move on now. Okay, we'll thanks a lot, but please don't go anywhere. Please be with us. And uh, over to Kurt, thank you for your presentation. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that people want to ask you. Uh, are you still here or has the Florida internet connection made you vanish? Where are you? I'm still here. Can you hear me properly? Yes, we can hear you. Should I share my screen with your presentation? Yes, please. Uh, you'll have to... Uh, I'll, I'll tell you when to advance the slides. Uh, yeah, one second. Uh, Asha, you'll have to stop sharing your screen. Okay. I've got Kurt's screen. Can is can everybody see Kurt's screen? Sorry, can you see it? Yes. Yes. Okay, Kurt, go ahead and tell me when to move. Is this okay? okay. 
Yes, so thank you for the invitation to be here. I think it was really fascinating to see the work uh, that uh, Arjit and Asha just presented. Um, so I'm gonna move pretty quickly, just in the interest of time. Um, so I wanna begin by talking about a house. For many, constructing the modern home has meant substituting for materials that are out of reach to them due to cost, the unavailability of foreign technologies or scarcity. And I wanna be clear here that though I am referring to uh, the context that we're interested in today, which is India, uh, many of the processes that I'm talking about are, 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 are not um, isolated to India. In fact, uh, they're even in my own backyard here in Florida. I learned recently that, for instance, uh, African-American communities in the mid 20th century had to substitute for materials that weren't available to them uh, due to segregation. Uh, in the city that uh, I grew up in. So in India, um, while the idea of the modern home was promoted heavily as being made with Portland cement, mud and lime were widely used as substitutes for cement in the construction of houses and other structures. In mid 20th century Bangalore, which is where I conduct my research and, and where I'll be referring to throughout this presentation. So here you can see an image that the ACC uh, put out uh, and which was published in the Deccan Herald in 1969. Uh, which is a, a kind of clear image of the showing the desire for the modern concrete house. Next slide, please. Mm. This is what? So, yeah, this one, yeah. The home of Mr. Subramaniam, uh, here, pictured here, uh, which was constructed in 1949, made use of concrete in the roof slab and a number of exterior columns, but used lime plaster, mud mortar, and load-bearing walls for the remainder of the structure, which was something that was very common in Bangalore at the time. Uh, next slide, please. This is an image of the plan of the house sent to me by the owner. Next slide, please. So though the plan, the, you know, the, the plan as you can see here is stamped with the name modern architect, the owner's mother oversaw the design and construction of the house. And again, this was 1949, designing the carport to resemble the family's radio set. So cement and steel uh, at that time were scarce and tightly controlled. Next slide, please. Okay, I'm taking notes and moving slides. This one? So as the owner, as the owner himself recalled to me, uh, his father had to apply for permits to obtain cement and steel from Bhadravati and petrol for the lorry that would deliver those materials to Bangalore. This is one of the letters uh, between the controller and his father. So there's much about this story, including the role of self-trained women in the design and construction of the house that remains unaccounted for in most existing histories of modern architecture in India, though I would say this is changing. Next slide, please. Hmm. So their histories are exposed when plaster chips off or when house owners like Mr. Subramaniam recall their memories and shuffle through fragments of paperwork. So what interests me here is how building materials are used to negotiate between aspirations to the modern home and everyday constraints of building. I see this as a creative process of material translation and self-making. Next slide, please. So think back to how the Subramaniam house translates concrete to mud and lime by uh, adopting the visuality and the forms of concrete houses, which would be familiar to anyone who's 
looked at uh, mid 20th century architecture or who has lived in proximity to it. So think also of how the house designed by Mr. Subramanian's mother takes the form of a mass produced household radio and uses the plasticity of lime to scale it up to an architectural design. So much of my work seeks to understand the fine grained texture of these stories in relation to political and economic transformations in India. During the 20th century, the substitution of materials and commodities was linked explicitly to different political projects of self-making. Next slide, please. During the late 1920s and 30s, the concrete industry gestured towards the Swadeshi movement in order to promote the use of cement in India. ACC, for instance, exhibited in the Swadeshi exhibition held in Ahmedabad in 1934. The exhibition featured jollies and other small building components made of Portland cement that were amenable for use in house construction and other similar scales of construction. Next slide, please. So around the same time in 1935, the Concrete Association of India published an advertisement in the Journal of the Indian Institute of Architects and the Indian Concrete Journal uh, that featured an image of a cement jolly in Hyderabad that was identical in form to Mughal stone jollies. The proposition made by industry-sponsored advertisements was that cement could easily stand in as a substitute for other materials, such as here, as, such as here stone, or even in other cases, wood. Advertisements illustrated to readers that a new foreign material like concrete could function as an everyday component of construction in India. Industry and architects tied the production and use of repeatable architectural units such as the Jali to the economic independence of one's own country or Swadeshi, a form of self-fashioning that was connected to the nation. Next slide, please. Oh my God, a lot of work I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. Lori. Yeah. This is an image uh, of an article of a column published by 1974 uh, in the Hindustan Times by Laurie Baker called Cementlessness. So during the 1970s and 80s, civil engineers and architects proposed the use of mud and other regionally prevalent materials as both a practical substitute for cement and a critique of development. Uh, and here by development, I mean state-led development. So though new experiments in mud and lime gained traction in the mid-1970s, they had already been in use as far back as the late 1940s. Next slide, please. There's actually two slides I wanna show here. So here is uh, an image, yes. Uh, well, the first image shows the, a plan of houses that were built by the City Improvement Trust Board in Bangalore in 1951, which were made out of soil blocks, uh, stabilized soil blocks. Uh, which are in effect, uh, by stabilized I mean soil blocks, uh, which were effectively mud blocks that were stabilized with cement. These were designed for workers as part of the new industrial suburb of Rajaji Nagar. Um, this housing typology was repeated across the city, such as in this image uh, of other worker housing near the Krishna flour mill. Uh, these are photos taken by the uh, elder engineer, uh, Professor uh, K.S. Jagdish. So starting in the late 19th, uh, next slide please. So starting in the late 1970s, civil engineers at Astra, which was a research center at ISC in Bangalore, conducted research about stabilized mud blocks in order to foster economic 
self-sufficiency in rural areas. So SMB, what's called SMB technology, which is again, stabilized mud blocks, was ultimately used for urban middle-class housing in Bangalore, especially by the 80s and 90s. The use of stabilized mud construction for new housing was initially driven by a critique of state-led development as being disproportionately concentrated on urban industry and imported technology. So the SMB block was intended to generate employment in rural India, and with it, new housing that rural householders would build for themselves. So again, another, another kind of uh, self-making that's attached to uh, a particular political project uh, that was critical of development at the time. Next slide, please. So economic liberalization reframed the context of self-making in crucial ways as part of growing mobility within the urban middle class. So imitation materials and techniques entered into widespread use by the late 1980s, including the painting of marble patterns on white cement. Next slide, please. The citation of marble made reference to places that were both familiar and distant, such as the Adanga marble that was used in cinema hall lobbies in this particular pattern uh, in Bangalore, uh, and also imported Italian marble. Next slide, please. So for many families, the, this is an image of a, a brochure uh, of imported marble and domestic marble uh, from a dealer in the early 2000s. So for many families, the use of painted marble accompanied the construction of a first pukka house in the city. So, so the context for this is that families were moving out of what they called sheet houses uh, uh, or structures in rural areas and coming into the city and building uh, a house for themselves on land that they owned. Um, so if we compare this to an earlier idea of Swadeshi, practices of imitation in the 1980s and 90s made use of material images to establish a house of one's own, say, rather than contribute to the productive forces of the national economy, as was the case uh, with the context of the, the early promotion of cement. So, um, slide please, and this is the final slide. So though it made use of common repeated patterns, the act of imitation was a form of self-making that drew on the individual imagination of the owner. So I wanna end here with this, this image by, uh, uh, that was published in Inside Outside uh, in 1988, uh, which was for Birla White Cement. And what's interesting I think here is that cement uh, actually is, is being portrayed as, as a, a kind of image bearing surface that can be used to generate uh, new images of materials, uh, or in a sense to kind of repeat things we already know, like the idea of the carpet, uh, or even the kind of colored cement surface, which is now here being projected as an image. And what I wanna emphasize here is that these kinds of advertisements for both Beerla White Cement and new imitation materials uh, appeal directly to the individual imagination of those that would use them. So with that, I will uh, end my uh, presentation and, and look forward to the conversation. Okay, wow, finally, <laughs> like, we're really out of time. But um, so thank you, uh, Kurt. It was really, really interesting. And it was what was very fantastic was the conversation in the sense that your presentation has with Arajit and Asha's uh, presentation and uh, the whole kind of shift in uh, thinking about materiality uh, in both substitution and aspiration uh, like what you were mentioning in the beginning and also this idea which i really find interesting is this 
relationship to swadeshi whether it is in the jali work or you know the swadeshi as a as a image only as a facade so it's completely changing uh, its materiality and it's not of course in that sense quote unquote swadeshi but it still wants to project itself in that format right and uh, so uh, i'm going to now open the uh, the forum to uh, can some of uh, tarun can you put on your video some of you arijit your video people some of you can put on your videos uh, i think we can also do that any questions you can type them out i can say some of the uh, the questions out um and uh, uh, yeah there yeah, i had a question can i yes tarun go first your your yeah this is this one's to ajit and asha hmm. uh you know i, I saw the uh, the people sitting over the over the over their work like the ships hall i think i guess it is i'm not so sure but if i'm not wrong uh you know where when you see that uh, like they the craftsman that made the made the ship hull but what does the architect do like if they do that like the, they don't do anything with a plan that they need to go go through and then to make something so it already exists like in their mind and not mm -hmm. on a sheet of paper so what work does an architect has have to do to make a i mean to make a hull or something well i mean uh, no offense to anyone yeah no, no there's absolutely no there you're going to be the architect <laughs> okay. yeah yeah go ahead oh, for us that was about us engaging with their processes that was a part of a process of us understanding how boats are made as a way of informing how we design boats and also how we design buildings because we do we do both of those things and I think it's a, it was a kind of direct engagement that we may not have got if we had uh, sat on a building site for three months and observed a process of bricklaying. Or if we'd done that, we we would have come into contact with a different set of processes. So also, it was, it was about understanding. how they work with their set of limitations and how they develop their set of processes over time and how we can do something similar within our practices uh there is also uh, see when you first go and it is nothing to do with it's just like when you go to a new place and your familiar familiarity to what is going on is much less so it's like going to a new colony or any other place where you have to introduce yourself or you're keen to learn something but you're not quite sure how to engage with these craftsmen as i i mean we said that where they are they're quite isolated not just as where they are but as a country also where they work we don't hear much about patagonia or south america and i and we went from very populous places and we just went to middle of nowhere and we are we want to learn something from them and but we don't know how now there is some this is a much bigger discussion but there is something that uh, uh, richard senet talks about and uh, it's called situated cognition so when you are in such a situation you have to allow yourself to be absorbed and you practically don't do anything like a lot of times you uh, you just hang around and you understand what's going on and that is how you 
engage. Now, this is something that I can see myself or us, both of us doing. Six o'clock, we wake up in the morning, take a boat, go to the boat shed, just roam around and see if you can do some work that helps them bend a piece of wood or do some painting, but not more than that. Then after a couple of months, you understand that you are a little more useful. And finally, they have to realize that you are useful to them than you stating that. So this is a, a, a dialogue where you engage yourself with to find yourself comfortable, which leads to a habit. And then finally, identifying skills, which often can be monotonous, but it has a product. Product that you say that I engage myself and I am satisfied with what I do which is sometimes can be very simple as bending or sanding. For me, I can sand in this endlessly. So. Yeah, this is a really, uh, this is something that the students uh, also experience. We all, in the first year, we also have something called a, uh, we have a life site studio that we uh, try and build into the curriculum. Um, so they go to a particular site at least twice a week and they work out of it and you know even if they're doing all the drawings etc all the plans so they're working at a life site and it has a whole kind of uh, um, it changes the way and the senate book is also part of our, the craftsman is part of our course um, and we really this idea of when you go to a place and you experience it whether it's the weather or the built environment or the materiality or the repetition is what kind of changes the way one kind of builds and experiences those materials and things. Okay, there are some questions coming. I'm going to quickly read some of them out. Hmm? One is from Meenal Singhal. Does vegetation growth uh, reduce strength integrity of mangalore tiles and bricks in turn of the overall structure? Uh -huh. uh, and then another question is... Uh, what ways have you applied your experience in Chile to design practice? Mm -hmm. And what kind of structure do you employ for the houses you build? Frame or load bearing? Should I, should I answer? Uh, I mean, yeah, you, 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 can, you can answer this. But for Tarun, his main question was, uh, what is the role of an architect? I, I, I don't think there is any particular uh, role of an architect uh, in and any... The, this is the PR forum and you're saying I... I don't think there's a role of the architect. <laughs> no, and uh, the role of an architect in the context of what he said, like sitting with those craftsmen. Uh, in general, uh, the role of an architect in, in, in such a situation, which Karun wanted to know, is to observe and uh, find that, establish this, that familiarity with what you're observing. That will help you establish structures which you're comfortable with. Next. Yeah, just, just to go through those questions one by one. So the first question was about the impact of vegetation and growth on this, the structural capacity of mangrove tile. But what happens is that when those things grow on top of the roof, it changes the load that's bearing down on the structure. So uh, that affects the functioning of the clay, but it also affects the functioning of the structure that's supporting the clay. So when you design those structures, you have to design them bearing in mind that they're going to absorb a significant 
amount of water and potentially vegetation over the course of its lifetime. So that's something that needs to be taken into account in the design of the supporting structure. And a mangletail root in monsoon, which is now, weighs one third the total weight of the root more because it also absorbs the rain. So mm. you weigh more if you if I put on a wet jacket on. So it's similar. The building is weighing more because of the rain. And uh, the moss and the that, that photograph the, the growth apart. If if you allow growth, you can stop that. I haven't stopped that. So uh, there is a simple consideration to calculate that load in Bangalore based on the angle and the kind of tides we use. Uh, but generally, people do take a measure of having deeper beams uh, for the tiles to last long. Again, this is also a bigger discussion, but the design of Mangalore tiles has evolved. It is, it is one of the reasons why many people are now choosing not to not use, to use Mangalore, Mangalore tiles. tiles because they do require a certain amount of maintenance and consideration that people don't usually give yes. to the construction, cement based construction. Cement-based construction is quite, I would, uh, I mean, Kurt would be the right person to tell you more. Uh, I did not, I mean, yeah, I think we made a couple of buildings in cement, but it's not like making in lime or cement there uh, in, in opposition, but it needs a different discipline. And when you talk about discipline, uh, one of our professors, uh, all, all of you guys know, Professor Raji used to say, uh, you have to sketch the plan of the building from its roof. So that way, the entire Malabar coast can be drawn from Google Earth, yeah. which would be quite precise. Um, I, I just want to say one thing. Do you want us to answer those next questions, or should we get Kurt into the discussion yeah, and please. then come back to, to those questions? Sarova, what do you think? Oh my God, is that a huge, huge question? Okay, so Kurt, why don't you go first with your question, put on your video and ask the question to Arjit and Yeah, Hashem. yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, so, so I'll ask, yeah, I'll ask the question and then I'll speak to the, I'll try to answer the question that Subhay yeah. uh, just asked. So, um, okay. So, oops. Yeah, so basically, I think my question, I was very interested in uh, the fact that your practice, that the, uh, Arjuna Nasha, your practice centers so heavily on this question uh, of taking things apart, and the way in which you seem to do that is is uh, is conveyed through the the drawing techniques that you use. Whether you cut a section across the entirety of a building and even the buildings next to it, or also the way in which you you draw vignettes, which in effect uh, rehearse a process, visually speaking. So. I think I, what I'm interested in is the fact that you're applying that to an industrial example. And, and it reminds me of the fact that, that, um, that disassembly and repair is very much a political conversation in the context we live in right now. Think of the idea of the right to repair or ideas about the fact that we need to move beyond an ideology of growth and think instead about things like degrowth. Um, because as we know, uh, like for instance, I first taught architecture in the city of Buffalo, New York which was a city that, that experienced an uh, incredible amount of degrowth uh, for a number of decades, uh, and in, in a sense had become largely abandoned. At the same time, cities like Bangalore have been quite literally demolishing themselves in order to rebuild. So, so in the context of Bangalore and so many other Indian cities, I've myself seen this in South Delhi, uh, 
it's not uncommon to see uh, houses that are only 20, 30 years old being demolished. So I'm very interested in when you move from this, the, the, the industrial uh, to the domestic and to the house, which you're currently doing in your work, how do you bring these questions of disassembly and the kind of larger questions they raise to the house itself, given that context? Uh, Asha, why didn't you start? <laughs> I, I tend to have like a longer. Uh, I think it's a it's a really interesting question. question. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's it starts in a quite literal way, but maybe has much broader implications than what we realize. In the sense of, it starts as a quite direct question of we have all these things available from an, an industrial context, but how can we then translate them into an idea of a home that makes sense to this particular family? So in a sense, it's, it's very personal. It's personal to us and it's personal to, to these people's idea of home. And the, the broader implications of that, um, I would say, I would say we almost don't know yet. That's not to say that we shouldn't consider them, but perhaps it leads to implications in terms of form, but also in terms of construction process and uh, an idea of home that is not completely distinct from certain local traditions of, of building courtyard houses, of, of, of building sloping roofs, which are necessary because of the climate, but are somehow incrementally modified by the process of reusing the residue from these industrial environments. I don't think I'm completely answering your question because I don't think we've actually completely addressed it. Yes. Well, I think it. I think it's actually interesting to answer it in that way, in the sense that it's exper It's an experimental practice. It's not. Yeah. And I think yeah. There's and, value uh, in that. To be to be to be very honest, uh, uh, Kurt. I mean, but it it took us a, more than a year to just understand what's going on inside uh, the first factory that you've shown, the Commonwealth Tile Factory, Mangalore, uh, which led us to uh, travel around in the Malabar coast to see similar factories and then realize that they're, uh, they're demolishing the factories. And uh, to be honest, primarily it was the beauty of demolition that it opens how it was made. It's, it's almost like unlocking a process of making by, uh, by the unmaking of how these factories were. Yeah. And to a great extent, it was almost like, uh, like I got, uh, when, when you take train and go and see someone demolishing a factory and you come back and you sit in here and you think that, uh, well, I, I got to know how something was made, but when I, I actually saw and experienced the demolition of how something was made. So this reverse process of making is actually informing you how otherwise you could have conceived the process. I, I think perhaps the political side of it is to is to try and set up a process that actually runs counter to current trends in terms of when we were building 
the office building or when we're making this house, we're actually trying to use materials and processes that people would be less inclined to, to use and to build in a way that will ideally last as long as those original German built industrial structures. And that's not something that most people are doing at the moment. Most people that, that we're encountering in, in, terms of, in terms of clients are fighting for materials that have less longevity and will inherently require change over time. Ideally, when, we, when the client approached us to build this house, we, we had to set a condition that we will only make this uh, proceed with the project if you allow us to choose uh, the material palette, which is basically buying bricks one-third the price, better bricks than you can buy otherwise, which took them a month to decide that, okay, we'll allow you to buy something cheaper because they were not sure if they're better. And uh, but the first project was also to... Why would you use lime if I'm ready to buy you cement? Why would you not use first class bricks when I'm ready to buy them? But I think the idea of cementlessness. Yeah, that's what Kurt raised. I think that's quite important idea. It's, it's really interesting and important in all these different contexts because it's something that we find ourselves fighting for a lot when all of the currents are actually pushing in the other direction. So a domestic environment conceived by someone must be secure, must be made from the best of materials available, which is basically like picking it up for rebuilding your house, which should not have any uh, impurities, which should have the best of its appearance, and which should also give you the confidence that it lasts for whatever number of decades. Hence, you have uh, created a safe, secure, and the act of building that environment that is what we take pride on, which negates the idea of residue or repurposing of materials that you salvage from not just from a, the breaking of a factory but from an industry which is completely erased from the memory of people. Uh, I mean, I asked 10 people uh, the first day I went to the factory, you know where the factories are? <laughs> no one knew. None knew where in the city of Mangalore. Factory, what factory mm -hmm. yeah. so I, I, I would have a question for Kurt. Yeah. In terms okay. Of so no, just one thing that I wanted yeah. to say was, uh, you know, even in our uh, the course of materials and making. In fact, uh, Jaydeep, uh, who you know very well, Arjit, uh, runs this whole thing that he makes the students break things apart, and that's a mm. whole kind of format of learning. So it's a very interesting thing that you actually showed and how one can actually dismantle things and uh, what, what is that, what kind of knowledge does that throw up for you, right? Uh, as also a pedagogic exercise, you know, when you tear things apart as when we are younger, we do that all the time. And I don't know where your daughter is, she's like, we didn't for an hour and a half, poor thing. <laughs> <laughs> she's, been, she's, she's, been she's probably somewhere apart. tearing something apart. Yeah. She has been apart in other places. So uh, just one uh, thing, we have about seven minutes more uh, and I think uh, we should first tackle, this. I know Asha, you have a question for Kurt. Uh, there is a few more questions. Uh, anybody in the audience wants to speak and ask a question? Kurt, there are some questions about Swadeshi identity. Which you tackle I, and this 
housewife. Yeah, I can tackle these quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah I can. I can. Question for you guys on the Mangalore tile again. So, and then I think we'll have to. Uh, anybody has questions, just speak up rather than right now because it's like we're running out of time. Okay. So quickly, uh, uh, I'll just try to answer these two questions. So uh, one is about this this question of uh, Swadeshi uh, as a kind of national paradigm, uh, which which speaks to certain kind of common things which might be reproduced at a very large scale. And and on on the one hand, and on the other hand, the fact that uh, Subay is, is raising the really great point that you have these regional variations and differences uh, in styles and methods of constructing tiles and so on. So I don't know, can you guys hear me? Because my connection is, yeah, yeah. is a little off. Okay, good. So so what I'd like to say is that yes, I mean, the, what I think something to take away from what I was presenting today was that on the one hand, you have the production uh, of designs, which as in the house I first showed, Every, almost everything is happening on site. Very little of what was actually used in that house was, uh, were elements that were um, you know, used in, in the vein of Swadeshi, actually. <laughs> everything was customized. Yeah, um, at the same time, that house appealed to the kind of larger designs, right? Uh, that that its, its design and even its plan might have been very similar to other designs that were actually promoted by the cement industry. So you'll see a tension in a lot of these houses between designs that are shared by many and, and which are uh, influenced by a kind of idea of nationalism and designs which are actually heavily localized or let's say attitudes towards materials that are heavily uh, localized. Like you said, for instance, uh, uh, the tradition of Atanguri tiles and so on. So, um, I mean, I'd love to talk more about it, but we're running out of time. So Tushar, um, yes, the role of the housewife was very interesting in that in that um, house uh, because, you know, like I said, she 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 even though her name was not on the plan, she she made her authorship uh, very present even in the most frontal uh, portion of the house, which is the carport. So I also thought it was very um, why I mentioned the radio set and the way in which she directly reinterpreted that as a kind of architectural uh, device. Uh, is because that also, I think, uh, represents how these different um, scales of, uh, of life inside the home actually become projected to the outside, right? So uh, one great a material example of this that happens in the 80s is the way in which marble is taken as something, is, is taken uh, from the interior of the house, uh, say, as, in its use as flooring, and actually projected onto the facade of houses, right? So we actually see that the kind of interior the materiality and objecthood of the, of the interior is actually made visible to the street and to public space. So I'll just end there because I don't have much time. Uh, but I don't know if Asha wanted to intervene. Oh, this is also a very interesting thing that you said about women's involvement in construction. In fact, my own mother, after retirement, she built a house. She was like the contractor. She was, was completely standing there for like eight months, 10 months, getting a house built. Yeah. And I think and, and very invisible role that the women have played uh, in this kind of house construction in Delhi. Yeah. I guess, you know, yeah. the refugee housing that, you know, Soli was talking about and, uh, you know, so who is staying at home, who's going out to work and then the work at home always 
and i usually tell the students that the first architect you actually encounter in your life are your mothers you know yes uh, because they're the ones who are constant and the role of mending you know this yes. thing you were mentioning earlier this mending continuity taking care of things adding things then you know uh, and i think that reflects in both your uh, presentations in very different uh, way uh, i think that's also a very very integral part of uh, architectural thinking about materials and making Uh, continuity through what is then used when i mean i'm not only talking about um, um, the idea of restoration architecture but people's houses and like i i live in a dda flat and i keep shifting between dda flats and i can see how many ways the person who lived here before the lady has dealt with many ways of trying to make the a the house look clean and white which is by getting rid of the terrazzo floor of course and putting bathroom tiles everywhere but also just you know these little things that people do uh, in parts of the corner the balcony where the water falls there's a kind of continuity of engagement with materiality that happens uh, in a sense with the of the ordinary you know it is not the thinking of the architect sitting somewhere who's figuring it all out for you and the future for you Uh, but i guess our idea is to let this ar- architects also build that kind of thinking from the year one and uh, yeah so asha you want to say something briefly because it's 8 and um, i don't worry i i'm not sure if there's time also um, can we just ask uh, the speakers one more thing um uh, some people might want to uh, to just get in touch with you later Okay, uh, sure. can I share your email IDs with uh, the speakers, uh, with the with the participants, because there were about more than sixty participants when we started, and there are about yeah. still uh, about forty left. So, and people write to me usually after one of these webinars to ask us this thing about you know. Also, to get in touch with you and talk to you, uh, I can give them your emails. Yeah, that's, that's fine. I think there were a couple of questions that we didn't actually answer. So, if If you if you want to send them across to us, we we can send replies by yeah, email. Yeah, but I I genuinely I, I don't want people to feel like they didn't get the questions. Yeah, I I genuinely think it's it's much bigger uh, discussion, and I'm very thankful. And yeah. Difficult times of COVID and this this way of interaction. Even that we managed to have this conversation is quite a lot. Okay, so guys, I think I will have to uh, just uh, wrap this up because I have so much to still say, and I have like sure. notes with me, all of you, and what I teach uh, at the school. I think I think the thinking about materials making and breaking, for adding that to this, which is already part of our curriculum, is, is a terrain of knowledge that we want to do work with. And you know, there's a I studied philosophy at some point, and there was a book we used to do called How to Do Things with Words. and i have always tackled uh, the question in anthropology as how to do things with things or objects and materials you know so that's one thing that i really uh, think that really comes together in the discipline of uh, what you guys do and uh, we have also you know in the lockdown processes you're talking about sites arigi uh, we try to think about the home as a site and the home as a tool and undertaking practices and acquiring not just the knowledge of the built environment but the kind of cultural practices of making uh, which was also very interesting to see at the ship fact ship building spaces where you said um, that 
craft is a part of everyday life and we teach a bit on crafts uh, through our design theory courses and modern south asia courses and how the craft system the apprenticeship system is another thing that i found really in, like it's something i really uh, think works uh, uh, fantastically and moving between of course timber and clay i'm just giving a very brief summary of your work not really trying to summarize everything uh, uh, and i think these histories of the indian ocean the movement of people the idea of protestant ethics <laughs> which is also something i find very fascinating because i uh, partly studied religion and architecture for my phd uh, work uh, and of course thought uh, your thing i have already uh, partly summarized it and uh, um, i think uh, this idea of the plasticity of uh, things like lime the whole idea of aspiration of what something needs to look like that radio house is just really really uh, amazing and one can see this happen in places like delhi and also in parts of bombay matunga if you've been uh, where people design in a certain way uh, and they Uh, adapt both materiality and a certain idea of modernity into the form and uh yeah so what i want to uh, i just want to end this and i want to thank both of you and i want to also uh, students are you still there? there are a lot of students here saloni and tarun thank you thank you tarun for your very strong and existential question about <laughs> what is the architecture architect actually do when he's there in a place like that uh, you're welcome yeah and i want to also just mention that uh, next week we have a webinar with professor uh, alokvarna sengupta uh, who is a faculty at the jsa and she's going to be talking about street art and the city stories and voices for inclusion uh, so this will be again on next wednesday uh, a lot of you are on our mailing list so you will get an invite for it uh, hopefully we will have lesser technical glitches in the world um Uh, thankfully the gods of american internet have cooperated while kurt has one of the worst internet connections that we can speak of amongst all of us i worked and we could hear him and we that he could present his work which was like a miracle to tell you honestly so whatever catholic or protestant gods we believe in uh, <laughs> the internet is its own god uh, anybody else uh, if questions thoughts you can write to the faculty also we can uh, we can maybe accumulate send some questions to them as a email um and students if you have any more thoughts there are lots of people who uh, turned up uh, a lot of my friends are here thank you sindura who works on who curated a very fantastic exhibition on pottery arshad himant uh, of course students varnika william who works on labor is here is an anthropologist dhruvi i'm not saying everybody's names but i'm just saying who i know so there's a whole range of anthropologists architects uh, architecture students and uh, people who are in the arts who are part of this uh, and academics of course of course the most important person to thank in this is mr azad ali who has been online for the next last 4 hours or something figuring out things because he had another webinar before this and azad thank you thank you satnam uh, i hope we have smoother virtual zones than today but it was great and thank you for your time and yes um, see you soon maybe right, everybody thank you so much yes. yes thank you bye thanks man thank you thank you thank you, thank you. thank you thanks a lot i thought florida sun have a nice day <laughs>